my declaration right now is that if we don't get the best brains to examine the evidence and the impact of the human activity in this landscape, the introduction of 500 species of animals, all of the trappings of humanity, and then the drainage of up to 60% of the daily water and 80% of the stored water, the people in charge are criminally negligent. I've put it on my website. I intend to proceed with it post-haste. That was Peter Andrews, and you're listening to The Regenerative Journey. We acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and internationally and their continuing connection to country, culture, community, land, sea and sky. And we pay our respects to Elders past, present and emerging. G'day, I'm your host Charlie Arnott, an 8th generational Australian regenerative farmer. And in this podcast series, I'll be diving deep and exploring my guests' unique perspectives on the world so you can apply their experience and knowledge to cultivate your own transition to a more regenerative way of life. Welcome to The Regenerative Journey with your host, Charlie Arnott. G'day, this week's episode is with Peter Andrews um, of the Australian story fame. Um, he's the father of Stuart Andrews who runs the Natural Sequence Farming Workshop, uh, Tarwin Park Training uh, puts on. And can I say what an absolute honour it was to sit here with Peter um, at his farm at Bungania and, and having had a tour of the farm and looked at the the practices and the the, 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 um, uh, the contours and so on that, that Peter had put in there, um, totally blown away by the impact over the last sort of just a bit over 12 months uh, since he's in, instigated some of the practices here. The it, uh, first thing I thought when I walked in the door, sorry, drove through the gate, the front gate, was it just sounds different. There was life. There was an abundance. We had a good look around. We got to sit down. This is a big one. Um, I'm probably going to have to split into two halves, which I'm very happy to do because it, it deserves... Um, some consideration in two parts, I think, because we would cover a whole lot of stuff. Um, we didn't sort of, <clears throat> excuse me, we didn't cover much of the stuff that was covered in Australian Story, and I sort of did that on purpose because I did, there's probably no, no point doing that. I was really more interested in Peter's life from growing up at Broken Hill, sort of the, the you know, his formative years and how he sort of got to get onto natural sequence farming, the practices and the, the, the whole philosophy of, of that and where he's practised it since. Um, we talked about government, we talked about all sorts of just amazing things and I can't tell you what an honour, yeah, as I said, what an honour was to sit with Peter. The conversation flowed, we had a really good yarn and I, uh, look, I trust that you enjoy this fascinating chat with Peter Andrews as much as I did. I'm pretty hard to manage. <laughs> if you hadn't already realised that is, or this is, Peter Andrews. Welcome, Peter. Good um, introduction. Good day. Good day. Whatever it is, I'm never sure whether this goes to air in the morning or the evening or the midnight. But anyway, well, it is a fine afternoon. It is, isn't it? And, and um, talking about fine afternoons, Peter, I'd love you to welcome to the show, the regenerative journey, and thank you. Welcome to your um, your back porch. We're sitting outside your house here at Bungania, where we're trying to demonstrate how we all live on the sun's energy. Processed by plants. That's it. He's pretty Only. much summed up. 
That's it. Thanks for the interview, Peter. That was <laughs> yeah. There you go. It's all done. <laughs> We're finished. And um, we've got chickens. We've got um, other activity going on, um, but we'll push through because it just adds to the adds to the ambiance, Peter. Um, let's start. I'd love to know what this farm of yours here at Bungonia in the southern tablelands of New South Wales, what, what it means to you to look out across your farm, what sort of feelings does that bring? Well, I've been coming to Bungonia for 20-odd years or a bit more, and when I first came here, I saw the township, which is 1813, it's one of the first towns. It was actually declared in 1870 as an environmental feature when the Americans declared the Yellowstone National Park. And because I've had a trouble getting people to realise that this Australian landscape is the most magic place for understanding agriculture and climate and so-called management, I built a property close enough where I thought I could set up the practical evidence that everybody could copy and understand and then measure so that it's no point in growing things if you can't turn it into money. And everything that grows... Today, as far as I'm concerned, is adding to your raw material, which will produce the very best products in the world if it's correctly recycled as naturally occurred by this landscape. And you said earlier you took me for a wonderful little tour down to the creek, just down to our left, <coughs> downslope, as you'd expect a creek to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also made the comment talking about this farm that this is um, an experiment. Is that right? I think you said it was an experiment. As no, I don't like that. No, I say this is a demonstration. A demonstration. Experiment. <laughs> We've got the oldest kick land me, in the world, yeah. the biggest land in the world, that evolved the singing birds, the flowering plants, and two-thirds of the fish species, and this fellow wants me to experiment. <laughs> You're kidding me. Well, I had it asked about. You, you must have said, you must have said it, demonstration. Not experiment, and I got that asked about. Didn't you I? did, yes. So tell me, tell me what what did you what did you demonstrate to me there um, this afternoon? In simple terms, the sun manufactures all of our raw material, and mm. each plant is a specialist at bringing various components in that make life possible and healthy. And so, what happens is it's lost from the high points by both gravity and capillary action into the deeper soil and downslope back to the sea. What I had to set up here was something that said, no, 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 we can recycle every atom of growth that occurs every day, and that's what's demonstrated here. And the fact is then that we can form, in the middle of that, any form of agriculture we've got from orchardry to aquaculture. So... um, there are no questions here that can't be scientifically assessed and answered. So both the measurement of the potential and the productivity, the management of the water that moves, and because of our actions, human and both Aboriginal and, and European, we're losing a minimum of 60% more water and we've drained 80% off the land. What this is showing is that Anyone conducting every form of agriculture can return that to the efficiencies of last. We don't return an old landscape back. Mm. We return the processes of that old landscape so that uh, it's available to anybody who wants to use it. And for anyone who knows Bungonia, this is a pretty 
tough environment, isn't it? Like, you know, how would you describe Bungania? Like the the Bungania that you probably arrived at here four years ago on the farm, or the as a kid, I was telling you before, I used to um, go down. I'm not sure near the national park and Absal and was like a cadet thing. It was. I remember then. It was very. There wasn't much grass. It was quite. It was it was tough country. Shaley is Shaley the way you'd exp- explore, um, explain it? Well, it's tough anyway. Um, suffering from total degradation simply because mm. there was no access into Sydney for eighty to a hundred years, not easily accessed anyway. So this was the avenue, and this area was the main road from the city to the Canberra district, and so it was extremely overused. And mostly because most people didn't really understand any way that this ancient landscape had previously functioned at its maximum level of potential. And sheep, cattle, farming, in the way that we've been doing it in Europe, was destroying all of the surface fertility and the plant production. And, of course, some of the scientists that I have taken through this country said, well, you know... We use similar farming philosophy, similar plants and animals. Why is it we expect to get a different result than the Sahara Desert? You know, well, we won't if we don't recognise that this is a completely different situation in Australia. It it is the oldest land in the world. It evolved the singing birds, flowering plants and two-thirds of the fish species. And that, in fact, if... um, we wanted to understand how this big flat land was able to produce these amazing outcomes. It's all in the skeleton of the sediments because the plants produce that. And my point for... Did you know, is it, did they do this, this, time, this time? Did they just see us and go, we're going to make some noise? I'm afraid they're humanistic <laughs> animals and because we're here, they're, they're adding to their... Normally they wouldn't be here, you see. They're just showing off. Those terrible. roosters are trying to, trying to do something to well, those hens yeah. that I don't know anything about. Um, the point I make about Bungania, Peter, is that um, what you've done here and the tour you've given me in the last hour or so, I'm absolutely astonished at what you've done in... Only a couple of years. You've been here for... Well, fundamentally, it's only a year because when I first came here, I had knees that I couldn't walk on Mm. and then I had them operated on. It took me another year to get over some of that because all sorts of things happened. And then last February, a year ago, like the February (laughs) that passed, Mm. I set all this in motion so that um, I had it all measured so that the foundation of what it was like, as you described, was Mm. measured. And now we've imposed the opportunity that exists everywhere in the landscape for people to measure subsequently. And the, and, and the, the element that you're capturing is water, isn't it? Well, and managing sunshine. water. We don't mm. ever capture. control it or mm. capture it. Mm. But the issue is this land was evolving by the use of plants managing water and in that process, they came up with the best climate on the planet under the worst natural conditions. And those conditions brought about the biggest examples of living organisms on the planet. So my simple judgment was we have the best of all worlds, the best in productivity. We have the longest hours of sunlight. This 
previously had the most efficient use of water against production. And it, uh, what you've walked and seen is how any form of agriculture can reproduce it and manage it at its highest level of potential. Well, we were just having a look at one spot up there and, and, and you showed me within, I guess it was 20 metres, just on the road verge there, and that's the sort of country I'm familiar with. Mm-hmm. And then back in your paddock there, you've got tomatoes and corn and pumpkin it, growing. Growing in these pioneering plants as yeah. well. Yeah. And the issue is that there is an understanding, once you understand plant progression and the movement of fertility by the hydrological processes, a predictable natural sequence to everything. And although we've been naming this natural sequence, it is only a descriptive name for the way the landscape used to function. Yeah. Which we are, or you are, or those who are practising, we'll call it natural sequence farming, are trying to emulate. Absolutely. And unfortunately, um, we need a more professional group Mm. to analyse this evidence and make it available almost on a daily basis to anybody trying to do this because in a natural sequence things can change and that change can create the opposite result because our environment is a cycle. So the positive side is one story. The recovery of that is another story and they can be very conflictingly delivered and confuse everybody. Is that the bit that's missing in... I guess people's understanding that, that that other 180 degrees. Well, it's not mentioned and it's not thought about enough. Mm. And I, I sort of try when I'm saying these or describing these things that I keep it to a limit so that the ability for a pest to try and say, oh, well, I know it's the opposite, and of course he's right. Um, so I attempt to say, look, it's this landscape, it's practical processes, it's about understanding how we can be in step with them and get every result and at a better time frame than naturally because some natural processes take a thousand years. I talk about the fact that I can pick up a pile of biodiverse mulch down here, take it to the top of the hill and absolutely recreate a thousand years of normal development. Mm. And we'll get into that. We've... You know, when I stopped at your front gate, Peter, and I opened the gate, and like a good boy, I shut it, but I had enough time outside the car to hear the difference. You know, it was, it was fascinating. The, it felt different, but, it, the, but, the, but it, it, it sounded different too. You know, there, you could hear life. You know, those frogs and that little that contour just off the road, there was just that, uh, there was a sense of abundance, which was, which was really obvious to me. The speed at which has happened has absolutely surprised me. I did not think that in less than a year this result would be possible. But now I know that, and I didn't do anything because I'm not a chicken anymore, so I let the thing walk around. <laughs> and the main workers here were the damn chooks and a few geese and, and, you know, the odd animal here and there. And then the careful management of all their recycling mm. so that it didn't disappear back to the sea the result then is automatic. So no one can start to say, oh, I can't afford to do this or no, no, it's going to be too difficult for me to manage it. I'm 80 years old and a bit more. Somehow I've managed it. Well, in some ways you can't afford not to. <coughs> I'm sure we can't afford not to. That 
was a panic that occurred to me when I first started this 45 years ago. Mm. And some of the really simple pieces of it are just things that we don't even imagine will happen until unusual patch of weather triggers them. And if you look through previous civilizations, mostly they were wiped out by salt, but the salt becomes a problem when there's not enough sugar. In other words, you don't have enough production by the plants. And then anyone who thinks the salt riser hasn't had picked up a salt shaker to tip it on his dinner and expected he'd have to put some sort of a lid on it to stop it floating off in the air. <laughs> I'm about to do that. No way. I'm sure you would have. <laughs> there is a thing, and we have a little sing statement saying, there has to be another four, so if you blow it enough, it will, it will rise. It'll go up. Get under that plate. <laughs> Peter, I want to um, just divert back to you, Peter Andrews, um, and go. I want to understand your regenerative journey somewhat, um, hence the name of the podcast. And mm. I, can we go back to a time... Maybe a little, a little Peter Andrews um, as a boy. What was he doing back? And where, where were you? And what I was were you, what suffering were you doing in a there? desert, thinking I'd die one each day for about two years. That was what started all this. But you were in Broken South, Hill, Broken Hill, next to where they'd burnt all the trees in the smelters in the nineteen twenties. What age were you there, Peter? Well, I was born in nineteen forty, so this all really materialised in forty three. Mm. I was shocked into realisation of the extremely, oh, I suppose, horrendous changes that occurred. And, like, I would get these storms, which would black out the day for as much as two hours, and they blasted every piece of living material away in the first three hours of one of these storms occurring. Then we had 3,000 sheep, which all got buried alive, probably in the next six weeks. And I'd go out with my father to try and save some of them. And they were so filled with sand and that we couldn't even lift them, couldn't wash the sand out of them. So it got to be a futile exercise after the first week or ten days. And I remember going out because he'd go out and shoot the ones that were buried. And this sheep was breathing under the sand where I felt I'd suffocate an hour before. And as it breathed out the dust and the sand would rise away and then it would look like water going down oh, a bathtub into its nose and I'm going, oh, we can't ever let this happen. So it kind of started me on this silly journey that I've been on ever since, more or less. So that was clearly a turning point for you. you it were, was you a were, trigger you... to cause me to be more careful and to be more observant and to realise that if we did nothing... Because the thing that happened then in the 60s, we had water as far as you could see. And under both circumstances, you were powerless. Once you had water everywhere, you couldn't move. And once you had sand and dust everywhere, you couldn't live. Basically, without hiding in some corner where it was a little less unpleasant. And, and of course, we didn't have air conditioning and we didn't have water that we could waste. And... Um, you know, for two years, there were three of us, kids that is, and there was always an argument as to who had the deep end, which was only half an inch deeper than the other end, in the bath each day. And then we'd take it out and try to keep something alive, which generally didn't happen in the end. So, you know, living two years of that, 
is a kind of awakening. And of course, then the war ended in 1943, and it rained, and I watched the landscape recover. Then I've seen it in my lifetime in three vastly different regions go through the same extremes, you know, fire, flood and drought in Adelaide, near Gawler, and in the Hunter Valley and in the Bylong Valley. And, of course, by doing that, I has recognised how these pioneering plants were absolutely essential. And the faster and the, that they invade and grow, the quicker you got from where you were, which is one to where you needed to be. And so I've tried to tell people that the reason we get rid of them is not scientific. It's a process by which someone else is making a lot of money. And I was Mm. talking to a bloke who could not stop killing these type of plants. And I said to him, well, you realise that the producers of those chemical control have had the hand in your back pocket for the last 70 years. You've probably spent the equivalent of $2 million dollars and your property is serially degraded, whereas if you'd have reversed it, imagine what it would be. You'd be living on in the Bahamas laughing with whatever you wanted to order at your beckoning. $2 million is a lot of money to be to, to have spent. I'll tell and, you what, there's a hell of a lot of people in the agricultural that, yeah. industry spend a lot more. Totally. And then just reverse that, you know, $2 million of chemical... And I was a chemical farmer and I sprayed the crap out of my pasture trying to get rid of my thistles, my cape weed, you know, Adam Lucin and stuff and um, Patterson's Curse. And I can't tell you how much money I probably spent. But, you know, knowing... Is your name Patterson? <laughs> well, you better start cursing, mate, because <laughs> you have shot yourself boom, in the foot. Boom. Oh, totally. You have no. shot yourself in I the I was foot. a goose, absolutely. Mm. I didn't know any better, though, you know. Well, the biggest and single challenge for almost everybody on the land, and it was including mine, but I'd got belted into submission very early, is to admit that we've overlooked some obvious stuff. As soon as we do that, this will become mainstream. And not only that, I've got the best scientific advice that could tell us if 30% of the world were taught to use these processes and principles, it would be worth $127 trillion to the community. And way back in 1980, seven scientists looked at this landscape and reported to a fellow called Bob Somervale that it was predicted in the next 40 to 50 years that the world would spend $360 trillion trying to solve what this whole landscape had already solved. So it's been frustrating for me to go for 40 years or 40-odd years and still have people going, yeah, he's crazy, that buggy, you know. He makes water run uphill and grows weeds or something like that. And I'm going, well... It's working. Uh, not only that, it's the oldest science in the world and the most effective and the, been the most securely managed and, and um, tested. So um, why are we doing this stuff, you know? And my declaration right now is that if we don't get the best brains to examine the evidence and the impact of the human activity in this landscape, the introduction of 500 species of animals, all of the trappings of humanity, and then the drainage of up to 60% of the daily water and 80% of the stored water, the people in charge are criminally negligent. I've put it on my website. I intend to proceed with it 
post haste. The simple solution is we can we winners, all of us. Mm. All of the mistakes have been easily demonstrated to be reversible and the outcomes can be better than the natural original. Plus, we are going to produce the very best products in the world because that's what happened, you know, prior 1900. And that's, so we, the, that's the point, isn't it? We gro- we're doing this to grow food, aren't we? It's of to, course, to live and, and be healthy. And we've got to get rid of disease. Yeah. And, you know, when I grew up, one of the biggest things were, even though they were dying of starvation, they didn't die of disease. And I had uncles in South Australia where they'd ruined all the plants and the sheep would be dying of one disease or another and they'd send them up sometimes a thousand at a time They'd all recover in weeks and within 12 months or 18 months they'd be able of going back and returning to the conditions that, you know, had already caused them a problem. And I, my father, you know, had an attack so I had to go to Gawler. I didn't have to go but I went to help him and the wheels came off. I just suddenly realised that the sheep that I'd known for nearly 20 years were just not getting the biological support that the landscape had given them automatically under the, some of the worst conditions that occurred over those first 20 years at Broken Hill. And uh, it's just put me on this course. And the more people I can get, the more science that we can examine, the more certain that this is absolutely available to everybody. Is that... Is that a radio, is it? You shut the door. Um, Peter, where... So I'm fascinated to know more about... I mean, that's a significant turning point for you, watching those those sheep drown in sand. What was the next point? What was your next turning point? What what did that spur you on to? Oh, the disease factor and we never wormed. We never immunised, and suddenly we had to have five or six immunisations and we had to worm regularly the sheep that never needed any treatment. And then as I've travelled this country and watched the destruction of plants, I see the failure of health in the animals and it's gone from five or six required immunised compounds to up to 14, I can't believe this stuff, yet we're not even saying, oh, wait a minute, mm-hmm. it's less than 100 years, we didn't need anything. And they bought out a, probably 5,000 sheep. We had 6.5 million by 1890, and, of course, many of them, 3.5 million, died in the drought. Then after that drought, we had blowflies, which weren't available previously because they lived in the skeleton of these dying, dead sheep. And so we bred a new group of flies. And if you want to understand the history of this landscape or continent, it is brilliant in that almost all of the pieces of evidence we need are visibly there. And if we get the best brains and the best science, they'll be available to everybody. And so so things were going downhill with Broken Hill in terms of the, the vegetation had been removed. And I was out there a couple of years ago and they've got this, you might be familiar with this, is that there's, a, there's essentially a ring around the, around the town called the Regeneration Zone or mm. something. Yeah, mm. which, is, which from what I understand is an example of the, of the, the vegetation that was there originally. Is that fair to say? No. No? no, no, no. We are talking about a landscape that was um, 
highly fertile mm. and had carbons at 14% and some more surface layers, even out in the arid zones. And as soon as we brought the sheep out, within the first sometimes five years that a big mob of sheep went through that area, it totally changed. And the productivity dropped to less than a fifth of what it had been prior to that. You know, and there's evidence of Kidman talking about a property where he worked as a jackaroo that ran 65,000 breeding ewes. He bought it some 20 years later or less, and he couldn't run 5,000 on it. That is everywhere in this country. Now we're running up, we're spending a huge amount of money artificially jacking up something that had automatically managed itself in the past. And so where was, where was, what was the next step for you, Peter, when the, um, there was the, you know, the not good outcomes for your, for where you were at Broken Hill, you know, the, as I said, the sheep, sheep were drowning in sand, animal health issues, what what was where did you go from there? Did you go to South Australia? What, and, and well, actually, after the um, rain occurred, and we had the wettest mm. period ever in that fifty to sixty year period. Mm. Then we had the wool boom, and we actually had fortunately brought a few, only about eight or nine hundred, very good quality sheep that some poor old chap had cut scrub for around Bawarana, and we walked them home basically because we needed at least two or three months before the property would have been recovered from the drought, which it did amazingly. And then we actually produced the very best quality wool from a broad acre flock for the next 15, 20 years because we actually did a lot of strange things that people didn't agree with by buying, my father paid five and a half thousand guineas for a ram. And then we drafted out, you know, 10% of the very best sheep we had. And then we culled down to the 10 or 15% each year mm. and kept, therefore, we, the rest. You know, so we actually could colour the rate that no other stud could do and we ended up with the quality that no other stud had on a broad scale. We won the fa- fa- best uh, fleece and championship five years running in Broken Hill and a couple of years in Adelaide in the shows. And we could send five bales of wool to Adelaide and get a bigger price than most of the studs could do after taking two or three years to get one bale ready. So it wasn't something that, you know, we worked as a failed lot. And, of course, then as the 70s came around, the station got dry, the wool was being poorly produced because we went to what they call commercial quality wool. And my father used to go absolutely crazy saying, that's rope, he said. That's only carpet wool. It's not going to be able to be sold for people's apparel. And, of course, that happened, and then the plastics came in. And that's the session. That's the session. I mean, it's just the basic greed and stupidity that brought us to the situation we're in. And my brother took over the station for another 20-odd years. We went, and I went down to this little property. My father died when he was quite young. And so I had to work out how to make a business and earn a business. I thought I knew a lot about thoroughbred horses, which proved to be a huge learning curve. I worked for 15 years with a fellow called Peter Irwin doing research for ICI into prostaglandin and, and then, you know, five other things about bone density, about mineralization, about all sorts of body functions. And that gave me a, an understanding 
that most people wouldn't have had in terms of looking at a landscape and being able to measure its potential. Can I go back to that boom time, 60s, 50s? What was what were some of the things that made your – what were the practices you're engaging with that made your wool? There was the – I guess it was the genetic – um, selection, you were well, well. That's not called genetic selection. The selection of your flock every year. Mm. Sounding was that was that was a. Well, we a, went to fine wool sheep. Mm. That's the first issue. Secondly, they were fed. We had sheep that we were able to weigh a core fat of seven pounds, and yet people are trying to grow fine wool, starving the sheep. It's ridiculous stuff, you know. <laughs> Anyway, all of those things still what, are in the system, you know. And what was the man, land management you were, you were doing then to 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 have produced such a such good quality wool and not be starving and to get that finer wool? Using Australia's natural sequence, my good fellow. Only was that your was that I'm, I'm interested to know. So that was your first um, ex, uh, example. I'm just I'm I'm I'm, well, I'm, I'm anxious had, to use the wrong word. We had very. <laughs> I won't go an flat country because, yeah. you know, my father said what happened in the 20s, any plant that would burn that they could get a wagon alongside, they took mm. to the smelters. So we ended up with nearly 50,000 acres with not a tree on it, not a single tree. And, of course, the grass grew and we had Mitchell grass and stuff that would wave like a wheat field. And was managed well. My whole family um, were traditionally diligent land managers, you know, and father's family had eight children in it and all of them were very successful in the district. So we had a very big influence on that district in Western Darling. But it all sort of broke up by the 70s and the drought and many of the people left the land um, and, of course, there was a boom. People had a lot of money. The people who knew how to manage it left, retired, and the new people have never been properly informed. They've been informed by those vested interests trying to sell them a product to make their profit, and all of those people that I grew up with, which hurt me greatly, were just about destroyed. They left with enough money perhaps just to survive on and their properties are being managed by people that really don't understand them. Tell me about some of those practices in in those years when you were trying your first not maybe not attempts, but your first, you know, okay, I've got a sense of what we can do here. I'm going to get the I guess the bulldozer out in those days. Mm, no, what we had, and this is the biggest frontier that it was about. At the end of the drought, we had about 5,000 acres of clay pans. And uh, we tried ripping across them and this sort of stuff. And then we had the very wet period in the 50s and 60s, and we had 10,000 acres of clay pans. So I was already fully aware that water was as damaging as it could be beneficial. So I had to start working out why it was so beneficial in the past and what we'd done wrong to see this thing going the wrong direction. And I had a scientist describe it in the most elementary way. He said Australia's landscape was a stepped diffusion system of broadacre hydroponics 
It is as accurate a way of describing this land as I've ever heard and seen, and that's all I do. I just move fertility to the high ground. I manage a step diffusion system uh, carefully, and everything is automatic from there. And so you were looking at the landscape differently then? You were, you were, you were identifying these steps in the landscape? How did, how did you start? Because this, I mean, this is the this is the fascinating thing that that you, where was what, 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 you? Because I've just done the natural circumstances course with your son Stuart, mm. and I'm now looking at the landscape with your help and with his help with a totally different lens. Okay? Yeah, sure. So, so, but you, no one gave you that lens to look through it back then. How how did you just go? Oh shoot, I can see a step there. Um, I suppose it started with the clay pans. Mm. Because when we rip through them, as they do with this key line farming and all that, it will work temporally. But I knew that this was a very old and a brilliant landscape, so something I was doing wasn't correct. So then we realised we had to put steps around the outside of these areas and the more we put through the middle, so the more the water was ponded and leaked through the sideways, so the step diffusion process repaired all those landscapes in the end in about two years. And how did you, you were using a what machinery? Were we you had using? a little. Uh, <laughs> we had an old nineteen forty eight Land Rover, and a single tine ripper. Feeding them. Mm. And so you were ripping a line. Was this the? Is this no, before we you were, actually making? We were contracts? following the high water mark yeah. around each of these areas. Which yeah. see, when the water sits on land, it grounds it. Mm. And when it's diffusing through the soil, it can live under drowned conditions. There's not the science to support that, that this landscape produces the evidence that guarantees it should be scientifically available to everybody. But because it's not, we plant trees and plants the wrong species in the wrong place, mm. and maybe every 20 to 50 years or even, even 10 years, the natural sequence changes and all the damn plants die. Well, that's not really good business, is it? Well, they get burnt. Well, I do because we have actually changed the species mix from a third palms and a third pines to really dominant eucalypts, which are incendiaries, and they actually don't manage the thermal heat. I had this research project going where the group in Europe were monitoring it from satellite, and the Bylong State Forest, which was immediately on my boundary, was measuring a thermal thermal outcome to a ploughed paddock just a kilometre away. So what we find is a eucalypt tree can wax its leaves and it does nothing to benefit the climate when the conditions are bad. Why are we doing this? And when we've got the science and the scientific capacity to measure that, and people in Europe know, and our blokes still argue that it's not true. And what we're looking at, and you asked a question earlier on, what plants would you use? We are left with fire recovery desert plants. They don't manage water. What we're looking at here, which I suddenly realised, we had marshmallows. And when they were growing vigorously, on a sunny day like today, the plants, grass plants next to them, looked like you'd put the hose on them all day. Mm. So the water vapour from the photosynthetic reaction, not this transpiration, because that's you sweat and you transpire. But when you're manufacturing carbon like the plants do, you have to have a lot more water. 
And that then meant that the more water went into the atmosphere, that meant that the atmosphere was cooler than the sea. And if you sit in front of a fire and you imagine that your heat is filling the fire, well, that's ridiculous. So you know that the heat moves from where it's hot to where it's cool. So if we got the land hotter than the sea, it rains out to sea, and every fool today can mm-hmm. sit in front of the television and see exactly that's what's happening. But if you listen to Columbus, he talked about all of the islands being shrouded in mist and the plants so wet that they couldn't burn. And yet we, we that's science, that's it. And yet we get people arguing about it. We only... <laughs> you only have to go walking in a eucalypt forest, you know, hiking, you know, there's not much shade, even if it's even if it's a thick canopy. There's bugger all shade because the leaves are hanging down, and that's it's a really hot hike. If you then go to a botanic gardens and go walking through a botanic gardens where you've got oak um, and elm and deciduous trees, it's a totally different. You know, well, in the same day, we it? went to Bathurst in one of these periods <clears throat> in the main street next to Macarthur Park, I think it is, and we were walking in the middle of the street and the temperature was over 45 degrees, about 48 degrees. We walked over to where the shaded European trees, as you Mm. were talking about, and it was 38 or 34. Mm. It's incredible. And yet we had breezes and all. And then I say to people, well, where do you think the water's gone? I'm sorry, the heat's gone. It's gone into water and it's called latent heat. And the thing is that that water vapour expands so much when it's getting heat in it that when it starts to shrink, it powers the cyclones, tornadoes, typhoons, all the things we hate. It's elementary, and most of us should have known that before we finish first-year physics. But, yeah, we still argue about how this system works, and it's a gas, CO2. And when we get to the situation of, oh, we don't want to have any heat going when it's hold the heat where it is, we take all the gas out. We call it the thermos flask, vacuum flask. And yet we're talking about things that are virtually the opposite. And the plants that we are seeing here could Mm. accumulate enough carbon to make any other process negative. And I know everyone sort of thinks I'm completely crazy, but I'm going to give you figures. 60% of the daily carbon is... Hang on, hold on to that. I'm going to get a pen... Don't don't lose that thought, Peter. I'm just going to reach across you. My my, fa- my fountain pen just ran out of ink. I'm just going to write some of this down. <laughs> there we go. Fire when ready. Sixty percent. Sixty percent is natural daily oxidation. Oh yeah. <clears throat> which is lost and recovered by the vegetation. Fifteen percent is what we've destroyed in forests. Between 15 and 20% is what we're doing by destroying the carbon content of the soil. And 3% is industry. That's figures. Now, if you put CO2 and a water particle into a laboratory, you will find that the water particle has 100 more reactions and they're 100 times faster than a CO2 particle. That means that in real science, the CO2 influence, which it is there doing something, 
is 0.02 of a percent. Now, when everything is examined, it cannot be more than 3%. It's more likely daily less than 1%. And when the European trees come out in the spring, the carbon in the atmosphere drops by 2.5%. This is science we all know. And here is Australia with the longest hours of sunlight, the greatest range of plants, the most efficient use of water in terms of producing production. No one knows how to use it. And when I do it, they think I'm a crazy man running water uphill or doing something crazy. So the more deciduous species of anything we can put in the the landscape, annual weeds or deciduous trees, the better. Absolutely. Because of its their and you always you always work as if it's a product that you must recycle. And good farming should be about producing the sun's energy into a product, and then good farming should convert that product to the most valuable product they can sell for the least cost. Otherwise, you're using your reserves in the soil, and all you're doing every day is destroying your asset. Peter, I'm just going to take you back. Don't get me into more trouble. I, I, lo- no, I, I, love the, I love the fact you, you love jumping to the future or the present. I'm trying to keep you in the past a bit. As you said, you said something interesting today. You said, was it about learning from the, was it learning from the past? We no, must. Yeah. If we can't learn from history, we'll tend to repeat it. That's mm. simple. Easy one knows that. And, of course, when I was trying to get my head around some of this stuff and when I was seeing things that I couldn't understand, mm. I went back and referenced as many of the archaeological history evidence pieces and I was fortunate to be in England and I was able to walk into a museum-type situation where the evolution of species, water, plants, like water, animals, plants, crustaceans and then the vertebrates, and it's the story that tells us all what we should be able to make decisions about and how. And that, of course, was one of the fundamentals that I used after doing all this research in um, body health and animals and landscapes. And there I saw this evolutionary process and I bring scientists into the landscape and say, I'll show you the most extreme examples that this landscape demonstrates and I want you to use your training and scientific knowledge to tell me whether they're all connected or not, because I believe they are. That's never happened that they've told me that the things I see in this landscape are not connected to the whole process of the way things work. So all we need to understand is we have the oldest science in the world, we had the best results of that science ever achieved, and... Now we can show that every form of agriculture can use that not as it used to be, but the principles that used to be. And what I talk about and have done in this is the step diffusion hydrology, the movement of fertility back to the high point and out of the soil back to the surface, and then managing that to produce the very best products that are capable of being produced under those conditions. I'm going to take you back, Peter. Back oh, to Broken Hill. I don't want to go back there. It, was, it wasn't a lot <laughs> was of fun, that, I promise. So let's go. We're back at Broken Hill. You're doing some work on the clay pans. You're, you're identifying some changes. Are you, you, you going, hang on, there's something going on here. 
you, what were some of the telltale signs? Were you growing more grass? Was there more water accumulating? Was there, you know... Um, if we got it right, the first rain event, yeah. the change was exponential. In terms of feed growing, yeah. rehydration. Yeah. And that, and that resulted in, in that well, in amazing wool. Well, when I was wool. really very young, I would go into these things and we got it really cold sometimes. And, of course, as kids, we used to go out and throw stones and break the ice and listen to it smash up, you know. And then they'd dry up and, you know, those desert shrimps used to, you know, be in bucketfuls sometimes in them where they were deeper than four inches. Desert, desert shrimp? Like, like yeah, they look like little stingrays. they got a little shell back and a little tail on them. And uh, oh, were yeah. they good eating? Well, Aborigines used to eat them. They didn't really look that attractive to me, so I didn't try them. But um, <laughs> you weren't tempted. You, no, you, you could actually <laughs> dig in the clay pan after the water had been on maybe for two or three months, no. and you'd find dry soil two inches down. So the surface was so baked from the the drought and the loss of that surface layer of fertility. So I saw a few things that, you know, as you start putting it together, you go, of course, you shouldn't be stupid enough not to understand that, but we tend not to. And as we bear the surface layer and we lose that organic layer off the surface, the wheels come off. And then we go and buy a chemical. Hmm. And I say to people, supposing if you're in an stressed condition and you take a caffeine, you probably will move again for a while, but you'll definitely die if you give it up. And our landscape is doing exactly that. We are just stimulating it, running it mm. through and making plant or getting plants to grow in conditions where the balance is not available, but they'll grow. But disease is the outcome. Poor climate management is the most extreme circumstance and, and the failure to manage the sun's heat means that that energy is going to do something else. It'll melt the ice. Mm. As this old scientist said to me, you know, if you don't manage that heat by thermal management such as cooling and, and, and he heating, it melts the ice, it rocks the seas, it breaks the rocks and it stirs up the winds. So turn the windmills was his other statement. So this is basic stuff. This is not something that even a kid in the sandpit wouldn't be able to understand. And I do find that when I talk to them, they actually get it straight away, most of them, because they haven't been told other things happen. Hmm. And when you tell them, they can see it, and so they go, well, that's true. Of course it is. They haven't got those paradigms to bust already. No. And they haven't got a history where, you know, they've been spending two or three hundred thousand a year and, and getting a failed crop, so then they've got to find another way of paying for that the next year to get started again. And that's just, to me, it's horrible, you know. And um, at the scientific cap capacity for people to understand this is always available, always mm -hmm. has been. But some situations which I've mentioned earlier, our authorities have to have an independent body like we do with the motor industry, the financial industry or our medical or whatever industry. We need an independent body to see that the best situations are available to people. Otherwise it just won't happen and there is nothing 
for climate and landscape, nothing. You can get up and say that a willow tree is bad and no one's going to ask you. You can tell them that a weed is destroying their soil, which is rubbish. And then they can say that, oh, no, no, we, we have to have a, a clean crop because we can't have another plant in it. And this this uh, Czechoslovakian fellow, Jan Pagorny, and he calls himself Rain for Climate with about 4,000 other people involved. And we had him filmed here a few weeks ago and there was this big paddock of cereal crop harvesting. And he's looking there and he's saying, you know, you know, that is now a desert. And, of course, if you fly from Orange to Perth in October, it's usually green most of the way. You go there into November and it is a desert. Mm. And then within the next few weeks, the first storms wreck this east coast because when that hot area comes over the sea where there's more water vapour, it expands and inevitably it will contract. So it wrecks buildings, creates... On the, on the coast, on the edge, that edge effect. Well, it can, can work inland anywhere. Mm. It can get enough water that can absorb that amount of heat. It means that volume is a huge big bubble and as soon as the condensation begins, the heat is carried away by the water that's falling down if it's rain or the ice is accumulating as much as 60,000 feet up. And then because it's, it's heavy and the thermals that took it up there from the condensing water are unable to hold it there any longer, so it comes crashing down and wrecks everything. I mean, why can't we understand this? And this is an effect across the whole continent, isn't it? I mean, It's it, across the whole world. The whole world. And, you know, there is this group of scientists that pointed out that these conditions, if the plants are not managing the sun's energy, make that process more widespread. And when the snow and the ice doesn't melt between summers, the opinion back in the 1950s when I was interested in all this because of the hell that I'd been through in the desert and the drought, that we could go into an ice age within five years of that heavy snow and ice blanketing the earth. And you, there's a program called Life run recently which said when the plants weren't here, this land was more often a big ice block. This is information that history tells us. Why is it we listen to all this other stuff? <laughs> you tell me. I don't know. I can't understand it. <laughs> tell me. Tell me about... I didn't know you were so funny, Peter. <laughs> Let me tell you, it's not funny. Does anyone because... else know this? <laughs> <laughs> Fortunately, yes, there's at least 4,000 who helped to inform me. Like, I was only a mug coming out of the bush, but these people thought I knew a little bit, so they used to hang around and, mm. and, and we spent four periods of ten days over a period of about five years. And I had this philosophy. I said, I'm going to take you into this landscape because here is the practical solution that everyone who grows a plant can be party to. Mm. And I want to make sure that the science is sound and the probabilities are available to everybody. And, of course, they went away saying, absolutely. But, you know, COVID, all of these other things have restricted our capacity to work in some coalition. But as I said, we do talk. And this Jan Pagorny said recently that, you know, once the cereal crop is harvested, it is a desert. And he said, you know, 
In the nine years that we've been talking, Europe has gone back terribly. Now, you know, there are examples everywhere in the world. The Dow Chinese have done these things, but they have to put a lot of effort into it. The terrorist farmers do these things. Same story, a lot of effort. What none of them realised until recently, and now they all want to know why and how, that this did all of these things automatically. Mm. So it cost nothing, was powered by the sun and gravity. It's just the most amazing thing ever. But all we've got left is the skeleton. Mm. And unless we understand how that skeleton can be recognised and manipulated, then we don't get the benefit. Can we re- can, do you think we can rebuild that skeleton to some degree? Not any degree. We can. It is the greatest potential because we need to. it used to take water and create in-ground water over huge areas, which because we were running agriculture, it got too wet. Now we've got such an eroded process, we've got a drainage system in the skeleton of the best possible outcomes we could have. And so mm. I've been building models where you can take a controlled amount of water to reinstate the groundwater system automatically run by gravity and we can produce the highest productive landscapes and manage it through all conditions. And capillary action too. Well, capillary action is absolutely something that I had overlooked for a very very long time and I used to take fertility to a high ground because I wanted to get rid of plants that were where I didn't want them, and they would decompose. And then this, when I produced an increase in productivity in that area by, say, 50%, right down the slope, the increase was 50%. And I couldn't believe why this was so quick and it could happen in just months. And then I started running this little demonstration with salt and capillary action and water. It's all as simple as that. You can watch it and you say, well, there it is. And you're actually getting water through capillary action in the ground to go uphill. Well, we we can do Internally. it in increments of, well, the capillary action is at the very best, mm. 30 centimetres, you know. So um, we can, by the increment of that, see it work upstream if the surface layer is in the right condition. Mm. Are you looking for more information to assist you on your regenerative journey? We've created an online community of supporters with exclusive access to interview transcripts, live online Q&A sessions with Charlie and his interviewees, as well as the opportunity to be interviewed on the show yourself. If you would like to be part of this community or would simply like to contribute to the development of the podcast series, please make your way to patreon.com forward slash the regenerative journey podcast. We look forward to you becoming a member of the Regenerative Journey community. Let's get back to this week's episode. Peter, what, because um, a lot of people would be familiar with you through the Australian story, which was um, really touched on your um, your time at Tarwin Park and, and post. What were you, what, where were you between Broken Hill and, and, and the Bylong Valley there? Where were you there? Did you go to, back to South Australia? Were you in South Australia? I was at, yeah, I Gorda. did. I, yeah. 
Well, I, I actually went from the station to Gawler. Mm. Then when the stupidity occurred over, you know, running water uphill and all these things, I actually did go back and build two or three properties, one at Bubarawi, some in various parts of South Australia, which when that big fire burnt 170,000 head of animals, 2,000 farm buildings and 103 houses, the area I had worked with didn't burn. This is the fires of uh, late 19, 2019, yeah. early yeah. 20. Mm. Yeah. So we've got all these pieces of evidence everywhere. The issue is we need a professional recognition that this is not my idea. Nothing that I have said, I can't take people to show them the evidence supported by the history and go back to the archaeological processes that related to it. And if they're all connected, which the very best brains in the world I've been able to access assure me they are, where's the problem today except ignorance and greed and self-interest? What, what, where, let's, let's talk about that for a minute. I know that's a favourite topic of yours. No, it's not. It's a, it's, <laughs> it's, it's a bugbear. What, can you give me some insight um, into that without getting too cranky? <laughs> Well, yeah, we don't know. We, can you give us some insight on why yeah, well, do you think that I, happens? I, has I, happened? Well, it happened because um, there is a lot of vested interest who think that if you talk about a natural system being automatic, that it will compromise them because they're currently running an unnatural business. But the issue is, if you increase the processes exponentially you increase the market at the same rate. So it's just nonsense. And, and, and what we're doing is allowing commercial interests to try and protect their profit by reducing the potential of the saleability of asset without really looking at it from that perspective. As soon as we realise that the better the product, the more we produce, the more we need another product to assist the, the, the outcome, and therefore there is no restriction to the market or damage to the market. It's just the greatest opportunity to build it. But I guess for the businesses that rely on selling farmers' stuff, chemical, fertiliser, they don't want to see change. They've got a really cosy little business business model there, haven't they? I mean, they're not, they don't have a long, longer term... I mean, I'm sure they've got a very long-term view, but they don't see the way that they their business could benefit by changing the business model to one where they still make profit but they're more supportive of this new way of farming or this this, this different no, way No, it's of the farming. oldest on the planet. That's, I mean, that's not right. farming in this system. The thing that frustrates me the most is I think it's our fault because, you know, I talk to you and I talk to other people and then they tell me what I've told them and I wouldn't believe them. So, you know, we have to get our act together and we need a more professional group of people to deliver the message as it can be. I haven't often done it as well as I should have because it's 40 years and they're still not doing it and they're still arguing about it, which is so fundamental as the sun's going to rise tomorrow, you know. Um, I can't explain that, really.
Well, I guess there's the pushback from those who would be uh, fearful or feel defensive about what this would mean for their business model, chemical fertiliser. I think the biggest single problem is I've written something and it's wrong. Anyone who's got the courage and gets up and said, we made an honest mistake, but we have the physical, mental and um, intelligent capacity to fix it and make it the best it was ever because that was the information that is it's based on, the very best opportunity of the manufacturer of the sun's energy in the product. There is no better one anywhere on the planet because you've got to realise that in an area from nearly here to oh, Longreach, mm. there is no real climate. I've lived out there. We get very wet winters and we get very wet summers and we get neither and then we get both. So <laughs> what it does is give you an opportunity to understand that every scenario is in a model that we can all use. And the reasons how we use it is also available to everybody who wants to do it. And it's really managing water and understanding that plant progressions mm. is the thing that responds to season and that every plant in the world, if it's analysed for its function and process, is available for use. You can't bring in 500 species of animals, all the trappings of humanity and the influences that we have without bringing the plants that compensate for those problems. The repair plants. Absolutely. One thing I took away from the course last week, Peter, was the opportunity which is given to us every day as a farmer, as a land manager, um, to do something positive in, in the context of, of this type of farming, natural seed farming that's called. And, and that there, are, there are three significant events that happen, you know, drought, fire, flood, that are each in there themselves a, a real change in direction or opportunity to take advantage of, or not take advantage of, leverage those natural, I mean, some are unnatural, you'd say, because someone puts a match in a big, big gum, gum forest, but opportunities for our farms to change the pattern and to, to, to instigate some change, you know, drought, you know, is an opportunity for um, paddocks to then, when the rain comes, germinate all these weeds that all these farmers go and spray, which I used to spray. Yeah, well, as an example, you, you must understand that the soil life, we only know 4% of it. Mm. And there's huge productivity capable in the soil. Mm. But it's a process in factory. Every time a drought destroys that life, it's available for the next cycle of growth. So at the end of a drought, you get a massive recovery temporally. Then the next phase is the repair plants have to grow. And, I mean, I was frustrated because people this year after the drought have had helicopters spraying out the recovery and it's been happening now for three cycles that I've looked at, you know, and, and the people are saying, oh, we've got to get more chemicals because these weeds will grow. And the old blokes would say to me sometimes and at, at a cycle when it had rained and the drought had finished, well, if it keeps raining, you know, all that rubbish will grow. 
and they used to think it was a mess mm. and a pest. Well, it probably is, but it's the most effective recovery we can possibly use. And yet we haven't taken, because it takes time. These things can be 30 and 40 years apart. You know, I've had to get to 70 years to three leases, 80 years, I mean, to see three cycles of it. Now I'm trying to tell people they're not all going to get the chance, mm. but the opportunity is still available to them all. It's a real paradigm shift, isn't it? And I know I, I didn't struggle, but it was certainly something I acknowledged. Um, the spring just gone last in 2020, uh, yeah, 2020, which was the first spring after the break of the drought, and I had a shitload of Patterson's curse. Right? And there was, you know, lots of comments about that, and I was pretty comfortable with it. But it was interesting that, you know, I was really grateful for the fact that it was there because if it wasn't – if if I'd – you know, like in the old days, sprayed it out. Something else would have jumped in there. It was probably going to be worse, but it was actually doing... Yeah, it definitely is worse. Definitely. I mean, South Australia was down to three species of plants when I first went there. Potato weed in the summer and Patterson's curse and sour sobs in the winter. Mm. And I just couldn't believe this process after having the station and all the different plants that were there. And then, of course, I went to the hunter where because it was a horse stud and had to import feed, it brought in all of these foreign plants mm. and under the worst conditions because it's got sandstone cliffs and a catchment that goes for 40 miles, miles I'm saying, and the water came down in a torrent and yet here were the best pastures in the world probably because we produced the best equine animals in the world for quite a long time. Mm. And like the barb was brought there, he went back and was a very successful stallion in England. And then we had Heroic and Star Kingdom. And these are the foundation for the horses that are going out now and breaking world records. And, of course, fundamentally, the remount horses that went from Australia when it was still functioning pretty naturally were known in Europe as the toughest and soundest horses in the world. Mm. They couldn't have been here longer than 50 years. Their genetics could not have changed. It was only the environment. And yet we've never taken advantage of that, except now, by default, we have got a little bit of a change. But, you know, my frustration was I'd taken 20 years to rear one really top horse and then when I got all of the biodiversity running, which was allowed everything to grow for a year, then in the next three years I produced five of the top horses of their given categories, including the top uh, stay run the Grand National and he was voted the tough and soundest horse in Australia, the top two-year-old filly, the fastest horse in Australia. They can all be named. They're all on the public record. This is not a, some sort of a wild dream. This is reality. And, of course, because I was still learning a lot, and I still am, of course, I just believed that this was so profound in the information that I'd gone through all of that stuff that we've talked about. And here was the solution that produced the very best results in the world. Why the hell aren't we doing this stuff? And, Peter, your horses and the results that you got with those horses were a result of the conditions under which they were grown and trained, the feed they were on. Absolutely. And that was a result of the well, see, practices was, that you were you were engaging with there at Town Park. 
Being, being that. The most fundamental piece was I let all plants grow. We had Nagura mm. burrs up to four metres tall when I first went there. Fitting. <laughs> and, and, you know, I'd nearly killed myself as a teenager with a blower mist on my back spraying Ester 80 up for 300 yards with a breeze on it mm. to kill Nagura burrs. Nearly killed me. Fortunately, it's destroyed my brother who stayed at it for longer than I did. I have seen this, and of all the people that were living in that area in the 50s with the blowfly dressings and these sort of things, they're either dead, sterile, or just existing. They're not living. Most of them are dead. Mm. And yet we are still ignoring this stuff, which is basically on the public record and people are talking about it. What frustrates me is I've been 40 years saying, you realise that there is a solution that everybody could use? What are you doing, Charlie? What the hell's going on, mate? <laughs> I wasn't, oh, I was around 40 years ago, but I wasn't going to be, I wasn't listening no, to you no, for no, 40 no, years ago. <laughs> Hopefully this, I sort, course last week. this sort of thing is yeah. going to make the difference, yeah. but people have to take it seriously. And if you think I'm talking rubbish, get the best brains you can find and let me take them into this landscape, as I've done many, many times. But the thing is, you show people something that is so fundamental and available to them, and they go, oh, I'm not going to tell anything about this, you know. This is, this is. And one bloke said to me the other day, oh, if you tell too many people, the prices will drop. I said, don't be silly. The prices of what? Land? Will drop. Or, or, no, the prices food. of the food will drop. I said, do you realise... Prior to 1950, we could sell our grain to anyone in the world at a premium. And then because our quality dropped, mm. and I had a fellow, John Duncan, who was the chairman of the Chemist Guild of Australia, and he said, you know, if we weren't adding vitamins for grain, the Europeans wouldn't buy it. <laughs> and then, of course, at that stage, the common market came out, so we had to pay a crook like Saddam Hussein to buy our damn grain because it wouldn't suit the European market. Mm. If we do these things, it'll be back in there with spades on it. And at cheaper cost, like, like an actual, the, the cost, it was saying before, the cost of production. We'll go down to a tenth. Yeah. Can to go down to a tenth. You know, we've got to understand that these losses of fire, flood, floating and rushing in the way, and all well, drought, usually nothing happens except that you do get layer of the surface turned into a crop, but that's your asset that's gone. And if we don't realise that these people that have sprayed out that asset this year, mm. we got 200 mils of rain here about, uh, what was it, eight, ten months ago. Not one bit of water carrying fertility left this area that I've managed. And I would judge that this district, in most cases, lost a thousand years of accumulated fertility in that that, that rainfall of energy just, water. just took up. Yeah. Now it's in the in the shallow. It's back in the, the sea. No, sea. I won't get in the shallow. It's down in the sea. But this next thing, if you have your dam set up in such a way that all the sheep shit goes into the bottom, mm. all your asset is out of the reach, and it's under the water. I've shown people how we can create a filtering system before that gets to the dam, and you grow grass and turn the so liquid compound into a raw material and you move it to where you can make an mm. agricultural product out of it. Mm -hmm. 
don't understand why this stuff isn't pretty basic, you know. Can you? No, I can't understand why it is not picked up by more. I, I mean, I've got my theories about, you know, it's, te- it's, it's stepping on the toes of people who are making money on the current system, basically. And there's, it's there's only political. It's truly, it's yeah, and yeah. our fault. Well, agreed. Our fault because we haven't had the courage to say, here is the history, there is the evidence, make use of it. No, no, no. We're stupid enough to go in buy another bag or whatever, mm. and then we get the people who are selling us the bag to think that if we're we're not doing that, they won't be able to sell the bag. And I said, if you can double your potential, they'll need double the material because people will still use it, but when they use it more wisely, they'll increase their asset and the quality of their product. But we are currently using it in the most unbelievably stupid ways. Our products are dropping. And I mentioned earlier that we go from four or five needed immunising compounds mm. to 14. That's the level that I can see in some places today. And the last one that I know of is Yone's disease. Mm. And, and Roger Fletcher used to be able to buy sheep that had Yone's disease, take them to the biodiversity that he ha- owned in some parts of Australia, and in six or eight months he could process them again. And yet, I don't Frustrating. It, defeat, it defeats me, trust me. I can't don't let it, no. I, I mean, I think it does. Well, I can understand the frustration, and I know you've had 40 years of frustration, but can I just say that you are being heard this discussion will be heard by hopefully many people, which will be helpful. But you're making some significant impacts. You know, the fact that Stuart's got that natural second farming course up and going, four days, which I did last week, that was a total my I thought I'd sort of, not that I knew everything by any means, but certainly I had no idea that my lens for looking at the landscape would be changed completely. Your persistence and the impact you've made continues. And I thank God that you do. You don't. You haven't given up. And it's a it's a real credit to you and your family that you are still here, persisting, showing some young rooster like me what you've done out there. And it's fantastic. So don't. Can you not stop? Can you keep going, please? Uh, mate, I'll tell you something. <laughs> if I'll, we I'll don't help, I'll make this a professional process. Mm. These sort of things, and people even like myself, have been around many times in the past. I've seen the evidence. And if we don't make this a professional system, there has been one opportunity on this planet, and that's this continent mm-hmm. and the way it operated, because it used to be three big floodplains from rivers that came out of Antarctica. Then it broke away and moved towards the tropics. Everything that is happening to parts of the land today under human damage and influence, diverting rivers into hydro schemes and irrigation systems happened to this landscape and the plants repaired it all Mm. to the best productive process ever and yet we're stupid enough not even to realise it. It's written in history for the longest period over the greatest area under the most extreme circumstances. Why can't that be simple? Mm-hmm. I don't understand. I really don't. Let's talk about fires, Peter. Um, I'm just writing down a little t- 
time thing there because you're you're just coming up with some gems. Um, talk, let's talk about the fire. What what do you think? You know, we had massive fires. Um, what was it over a year ago? A yeah. year and a bit ago now, yeah. and 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 they started in. I think they started in October, didn't they? And then they sort of every we, every month that rolled by for four months, there were massive fires. We have a great old Aboriginal elder here, and I've been working with him now for six or eight years. Uh, we call him Uncle Max. And I was working with another group in the Pilgrim where they burn all the time. And I said to him, you know, mate, you should work with the guys up in the north because he checked all this and he started to go, this makes sense. He said, you know, if a plant has been here for 50 years, it's a native. And I said, you're right, mate. There's no doubt about that. And if we've brought in all these animals, we need the plants to compensate for them. Well, I understand that too, he said. Well, I said, let's realise that if we all work together, um, we can make this landscape better than it was when you fellas turned up. Oh, and then they said, oh, you realise that um, he, uh, you're going to interfere with our mother. And I said, yeah. But let's imagine she's been in a catastrophic accident. We put her into life support and now we're going to give her plastic surgery and make her the most beautiful on the planet. Oh, okay, he said. Mm. But he said, we'll have to do more of this controlled burning. I said, mate, haven't we got to feed more people? And he said, mm, yes. Well, I said, can you burn anything and end up with more? No, he said, you're right. We've got to learn to recycle. That's the issue. That's mm. how every civilization was the most effective in the past. And that's why this landscape was such a wonderful place until we messed it up. I don't understand. Can I remind you, you, I might have mentioned this the other day when I saw you, but about 10 years ago, because you've just reminded me of this, about when you said about being in intensive care, and I chased you up the Maloon Creek 10 years ago with a little dictaphone thing, and I stuck it in your top pocket. You probably won't remember. I was some dopey rooster back then, just... Annoying you probably, and I, you know, there's old, old the little thing you press the play button or the record, and I popped it in your top pocket, and I badgered you all the way up Maloon Creek from the bottom right up the top, asking you these questions, and you said that, you said that, you know, these incisions in the landscape are incisions like a cut, and we need to use whatever tools we have to mend it, you know, and put sutures, you use the word sutures, the willows are sutures on the landscape we're using to mend this, and that has stayed with me. Um, for that whole time, and I've always been a big fan of willows. And at that time, there was a massive lot of funds being directed to, to the removal over remove. seven hundred and fifty million, and that was back then and escalated yeah. exponentially. The thing is that they are the greatest at air conditioning and accumulating and recycling mm. carbon and feeding the aquatic systems in the rivers and systems. Mm. That then meant that we have shot ourselves in the foot with our carbon commitment. Every dollar we spent was costing us probably 10 to $20 in that endeavour of our management of the carbon and the landscape and the climate. And, of course, um, I have done these models and at, Bar- at Barrymore, where you were just quoting, we had a joint venture with the independent government authorities. 
And they said, you know, you have to get rid of those willow bees because they're going to destroy the aquatic life. And I said, well, let's just see. So I planted twice as many as soon as I could get a chance to do that. And then they ran their first tests at the end of 18 months and it was double the pristine park that they were using as a reference point and they won't measure it again. But that's what happened. Because you proved them wrong. Of course. Mm. Wrong by 100%. The power and of the willow or the whatever. No, no, well, I did it at Barrimal as well, so yeah. this is not the only place, but that happened at, at Maloon Creek. And the same thing happened at Barrimal Stud, Jerry Harvey's property. Mm. Which, it's, it's the ultimate potential to understand all this. Jerry made that asset, which was a multi-million dollar asset, attempting to produce the very best horses in the world, and it had been very badly degraded. And we did the same exercise where we were able to double the aquatic life in less than two years and produce water that had gone from, you know, three and four hundred parts per million of salt back to 150. Mm-hmm. We were able to stop the sand moving which was in the multi-millions of tonnes a year. Today, because and one of the big things that you were mentioning about our eroded streams, what what was said by the CSIRO to the government, oh, we don't have enough soil to fill the streams. Of course we don't. But the stream is no different than an earthquake or a gully and, and the fact is that we can turn that hole into nothing more than a valley and by knowing how to manage water and bring a trickle amount off the system upstream, we can get the best results that were natural under the most elementary management system because it's all run by gravity. Yeah, we don't do it. We drain it all to the sea and try and pump that back inland. I mean, how stupid are we? Or Martin Royds, who knows a, a mentee of sorts of yours and someone who, who looks up to you and you've done some work with Martin. Um, he, he, he made the good point there when I interviewed him for the show, Peter, that um, the government spent, I think it was $2 billion building a desal plant out on, off the coast of Wollongong or Sydney or somewhere to, 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 to secure the Sydney water supply. And if they'd spent $2 billion on the land, you know, in the, in the catchment, then that would, have, that would have been a much more long-term and effective way to secure the well, water, water, to, water. You know, for, just for the, the management of the first cycle of elementary plants, if you do it as it can be done, you increase your rain availability because you're recycling mm. the daily water, 95 mils it's worth of, of rainfall. And dew. Yes. And um, reduce, reducing evaporation. See, we can convert the precipitation and when you go to transpiration and the cooling of the photosynthetic process, and once we plan a landscape to use that, which is not even considered, unfortunately. But here, and I mean, you probably wonder what the hell is at my back there, but they're fat hen plants, 14 feet high, the tallest of them. 
Wow, you know. So for those who can't see. A bit see. of raw material, I'll grow a few <laughs> good carrots for them, mate. <laughs> no, it's fascinating. So for those who are watching on YouTube, maybe on the video, um, and those who are listening, you can't see, obviously. But behind us is Fat Hen. Now, Fat Hen is a, a caught Fat Hen. A lot of fat cockies don't like Fat Hen because it's like a weed and I don't want it. It's called Fat Hen because it fattens hens and, and it does a great job. Now, in a normal farming, I've never seen Fat Hen bigger than probably four foot, you know, in sheep yards or in some disturbed area. But these ones, you say, are 14 foot high. No, mm. are they? They're bloody the high. The tallest ones are. They're bloody high. Well, I mean... The house is 12 feet, and they're two feet above that, so, you know, maybe I'm not a good judge, but that's a measurement that I can understand. <laughs> what are you doing? Are you doing wee on them every night or something? Oh, I'm not going to talk about all that. <laughs> <laughs> now, when I talk about bushfires, though, I sort of trotted you there a minute, and then you took it on some other crazy tangent, but I'm glad we went there. Let's go back to bushfires. What do you think, Peter, when these fires happened, all those well, 12, 14, 15 months ago, what what would have been the most effective and appropriate <laughs> management practice on those areas after the, after that fire? If you'd had your way, if you'd had some, you know, if you if you'd been able to direct funds, personnel. well, I wouldn't be using fire to kill fire. Einstein said, if you use the thinking that's caused the problem mm. to solve it, you are insane, and that's pretty much basic. What we did find is if you had, and I did a lot of work in Victoria after those very severe fires when that 120 people got burnt at Maryville, mm. and they actually lit a burn back in that situation, which is really terrible. Yet there was a house just a few miles from there where there was just five acres of sorghum in front of it and the fire went over it. Where in this district there were plants that, could use a lot of water, such as poplars or anything else, they lifted the fire over the downstream side and they so took the heat and thermal processes out of that thing that the fires became manageable. If we realised that eucalypt trees did not grow in the flow lines where they're planting the damn things today and what we had was angophorus, which are very hard to burn, and um, casuarinas which don't burn that easily, the areas of the street and many fragmity patches, chains of pond, that meant that the fire could not get going in the valley. So you could put the stuff out in the, on the hillsides at night with your foot and a very small amount of water. And, of course, we've turned it around so that we've planted eucalypts right up the flow lines and they start a thermal process which makes it impossible because just the hot air turns the trees higher up into gas and no one can manage that. And yet that's been available and demonstrated after the fires in Victoria. That was the inquiry and the result of the inquiry. It was the same in South Australia, yet I am watching them still Mm. take out things like blackberries and whatever grows in the flow line and planting gum trees. That should be a jailable offence. So, and this this is a fascinating thing, Peter, and I totally get it. So for those who aren't familiar with the the whole natural seconds farming, I guess, the principles, the flow lines were where the wetlands were in their chain of ponds 
there was there was as you say these fire retardant as it were plants n- naturally growing plants yes and and they if, were the only <laughs> ones after the animals had taken the more available ones like lamandras and all those mm. There was a, a huge range of these plants that were fully edible to the animals, and they went in the first five or ten years. Because the, the domestic, the cattle, the sheep, they came and took them Absolutely out. Absolutely. Yeah. So before then, if there were any fire events, you know, and, and as you know, Stuart mentioned and you had before, um, fire travels very quickly uphill. And if it's not because that's just... Well, so does hot air, that, which that's is actually what reduces the fire's ability to go out of control. So if the fires aren't starting in the gullies because there's wetlands and there's those fire retardant trees or in vegetation, we don't get those massive fires racing up those ridges which basically get to the top and keep going and then land on the next ridge. Well, you ridge. can't stop because then they lift mm. the thermal, like the uh, the ash. And mm. We were, there was a fire started at Golgong. We were actually 50 k's away, almost as the crow flies, and leaves were landing there when that fire was on that were so hot you could hardly touch them. Mm. So they were so close to lighting another fire. And, like, I walked around for two days thinking, wow, where's the next fire going to start? But unfortunately it didn't. But we did have enough plants and thermal managing systems. As I said, the Europeans managed it and it was so much better than the the National Park that, you know, day and night was was a difference. You know, it was just... And having having vegetation like a a better mix of vegetation or an original sort of, as we might call the type of vegetation on tops of the hills where you said there was, you know, there's deciduous trees that are no longer in the landscape because that's where where, where lightning would strike at the tops of hills. If you've got that kind of vegetation, there's less chance of that burning as well. That was something Stuart mentioned the other day, which I thought was pretty cool. Well, we should realise that if we've got a very vegetated area such as here, and we lit a fire at this time of day, the damn thing would go out as soon as the sun went down. You'd have trouble bloody getting it going. Well, you do. You can't get it going. But the point is, if you did, you set it out. doesn't matter where you set it. No, it wouldn't. As, just, soon, as, as soon as the sun goes down, the thing goes out. It's so damp and cool. Well, cool. the atmospheric moisture just mm. stops it getting Snuffed enough it. heat within the fire to keep it oxidising and burning. Mm. I mean, I've seen that, and I mean, I had a place in Adelaide, in the Adelaide Hills, and back then I was stupid enough to burn a lot of stuff. And um, old people said to me, do you realise that the roots could get a light and five or six weeks later mm. where they come closer to the surface, start another fire? Some of these things were all of the learning process. If you live long enough and you strike enough smart people, they teach you this stuff. Well, you're teaching me now, Peter. Well, I'm trying to. <laughs> well, I'm a bit stubborn. <laughs> no, I'm not. Well, I'm an open book. Well, you you basically have oh, I love it. I tried to um, <laughs> awaken the sleeping. Mm-hmm. And um, we need to do that. And actually, it's the most... I was advised by Sam McMahon, who was Billy's brother, who actually went to the best brains in the world. And he advised me that the men on the land are very unique people. They're 1% of 1% of the population. But they have an unusual characteristic. They make their way in the world 
by not listening to anybody. So you can't teach them. You can't tell them how to do things, you see. But he said to me, if you can't demonstrate and support it by the most rigorous science, don't try to do this. I'm out there now, mate. Well, you are. You're using vigorous science and you are demonstrating. I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in the middle of a, not an experiment, a demonstration. It's a demonstration. It's no experiment. That's all happened a thousands of years ago, that, that experimental part. Now, I want to jump back to, I want to, this fire thing's fascinating because a lot of conjecture around, you know, and blaming of people about, oh, they should have backburned all these years ago and it's all this fuel's getting built up. And if they'd backburn, it would have taken the fuel load out and it would have been, if a fire had got away, it would have been a slower burn. So what I'm getting, Peter, is that we're actually missing the point, aren't we? We're totally on the wrong tram because if you burn an area, and there are plenty of examples that I know of where it'll burn again in a few months. Yeah. It's just, and most of these serious fires have been out-of-control burns. And, you know, there's a situation up in the Pilbara where it's just terrifying, and there was four groups of people who want to see a bare ground. There's the people with the metal detectors who want to be able to get around without plants getting in their way. There's the blokes who can't manage cattle and can't get them out of the scrub. There's the fellas that... um, um, what is it? There's for mining. No, no. Yeah, sorry, you're right. It's the geologists who mm. want to be able to see the landscape to tell the miners what's the best what's option. There, yeah. And then there's the Aborigines who have been told it's the best way to manage a landscape. Where you know, if we go through the history, you'll find it reduced the potential of this landscape to less than a fifth of what it had been when it was in its automatic state. Because I, from what I understand, Peter. It was the um, the use of fire which has created the landscape that that over many thousands of years, which which inadvertently I guess produced a monoculture because the only the, the species that that survived those fires that management style were the eucalypts, which so so and then it 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 sort of pushed it towards that monoculture as it were, which made it more and more fire prone, and then we come along with our management. Uh, so that was, I guess, in a state of some um, uh, m- good management or management that was reasonably stable, is what I understand. Then we us, we came along and just accelerated the disaster with with domestic animals, and 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 there were no and there were no no very few deciduous species left um, in the landscape at that point. Anyway, we had a third palm, a third pines. And eucalypts were four percent of the remnant vegetation. Four percent, and in numerical numbers, and they were the huge, big trees that grew above the canopy and prevented the wind from taking the moisture out. Now, what actually happened? If we actually go and the Aborigines could easily build this mother of theirs to the most beautiful on the planet, no question. Mm. But what started it all? was the clearing of the West Coast. There was so much aquatic food there and there's great big piles of shells that mean that that definitely happened. And as they would live there in large numbers, they gradually burnt out the trees and cleared the land. 
When you clear the coast for 100 kilometres around, you dry out the inland. So what happened after that process, which took about 15,000 years, the fires started, and in their own dream time, they said the forest opened up and a large fire happened. So they invented the control burning because they had no other method of stopping the fires. We do today, and we have the technology, the capacity, and within maybe two to three years, we could change the thermal management of the land because we have this technical ability, once we get over the extremes, to manage a fire no matter what. You know, I had them... And there was a few people didn't like a few things I was doing in Bialong, particularly because they were putting a railway line through and they were just destroying my horse stud at the time. And they lit me up three times and two of us went up with knapsacks on their back and put every burning ember out overnight and the fires never got away. Because you, you had the environment that was fire Well, we had the valley were, system yeah. as well, yeah. that helped. Yeah. But the fact was that the... Bylong State Forest, they tried to burn it while I was there. And they said it hasn't been burnt for 40 years. Well, I said, it's not going to get burnt now, if you realise. And I said to this guy, well, you know, I'd, I'd found out where he lived and what he was going to do. And I said, I can give you a guarantee if there's one ember comes over that cliff onto my place, when you go on holidays next, I'll either put the hose through the window and flood your joint or I'll burn it out, you know. And funnily <laughs> enough, he threw all these incendiaries out, maybe 20 or 30 of them, and all there was a puff of smoke here. And he must have thrown on top of rocks with a few leaves on it. <laughs> I think the bloke was brilliant. <laughs> he did all his job and it never did lit a job. fire. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, getting, I'm trying, I'm, I'm, maybe I'm not asking the question well, or maybe I'm trying to lead you somewhere you don't want to go. Tell me about the what was what would have been the. I'm going to answer it for you. <laughs> I'm going to answer the question for you. So, how's this for an idea? So, when the the dust settled, the ash settled on those bushfires, right? And there's there's tens of thousands of acres of of burnt eucalypt forest, national forest, state forest, private land, would the would one of the best things that could have been done was, whether it was by air or by hand or something, the spreading of blackberry, leucina, bloody acorns, like deciduous Absolutely. trees. Absolutely. Yeah. But the point is I, in Bylong, deliberately built a contour up in the steep country and I could show, because it's all been scientifically assessed and it's had nearly 40 years, was done in 1980, to show that if we were to trap the water, and I've done it on this property and, and we walked around and looked at it, if we trap the water in the top third of a catchment, we trigger the beginning of all of the process this Australian landscape actually used to have, we could stop a lot of water going down and creating floods in the occupied areas and we could let some of that water down and hydropower and the cheapest possible water storage is a contour. And the thing is, the Australian landscape, and I used to watch it after the drought, we had a few areas which were swampy, marshy areas that kept producing quite a lot longer than the rest of the landscape. Then when it rained and a flood happened, that 
floating material would get on top of the water like froth on your beer. And then it would line up along the high water mark. So it created natural contours. And that occurred to me, wow, that is how this whole landscape worked. It shifted the fertility of the high point. Then it created a water management system that slow-released fertility. I mean... We can, and we can copy that, can't we? Well, I've done it here. That's yeah. what it's about, you know, yeah. and that's what you walked around looking to the frogs and everything in the yeah. pieces. But they're very insignificant. They don't have to be, obviously, a massive big structure. And you mentioned there just a minute ago, you know, the, 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 the amount of water that, that flows from high to low through, you know, ever-increasing narrow gorges. Tell me about um, Brisbane. When those floods went through Brisbane, you you were up there, weren't you? Well, we'd actually been asked to go and look at the Lockyer Valley maybe 10 years before that. And we wrote a report, which is still on the record, that said this is a disaster waiting to happen. And in that catchment, right next to the reservoir, we put a model together with a fellow called Ken, oh dear, I'm not good with names now, and he rang us up after that disaster happened and said, yeah, these idiots said what they've done and, and, and his place had worked perfectly apparently and had no damage. And so I've got about three or four examples in that area where they're fireproof, they're floodproof and they're economically viable. So in, 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 in recreating the natural function of the landscape in the way we've been talking about, higher up in the landscape, can avoid, mitigate against those sort of floods that went through the Lockyer Valley there, which took out homes, lives were lost, structures, devastation. We're talking about significant, in a number of ways, we're mitigating against those floods happening, and if those floods don't happen, it's because the water is still up in the landscape being useful. Growing vegetation, growing you food. You see, we have people telling us, and then there's a guy in Tamworth talking about he's been on radio for 25 years, I think it is, and he said he used to have a colleague up in Nundal or somewhere in that area, and he'd tell him that there was a flood coming and he could tell his people that in 24 to 48 hours this flood would turn up at their place. He said the last time he rang him up and told him it was there in six hours. So you clearly know that very little of that water has been used in any other form but creating a damaging flood. And it's carried away the fertility that was Mm. soluble enough to be picked up. This is not even speculative. This is real looking at daily processes that we could all analyse. And I've been trying for 40 years to ask people to measure the losses in the water, and about once or twice. And sometimes it's a huge amount of phosphorus goes, huge amount. Mm. And then you've got all of the other compounds, and then there's human requires 3 million compounds, and a lot of them run our brain. Now we're getting people all stupid because they aren't eating the right food. And then we're getting viruses around which particularly the animals precede us because we can shift you know, food and compounds around by using herbs and all this sort of stuff. 
And, you know, when I first started this, I had a lot of very intelligent people around me and I was saying to them, I can't understand this because, you know, I believe that 50% of people today could not live under natural conditions. And this professional scientist, um, come doctor, specialist doctor, said to me, no, no, make it 70 to 80%. Oh, I know. And he went through it and he said, there's sugar, diabetes, there's... Mm. fluid retention, there's heart disease and asthma. He had the figures, no trouble at all. That were now and then, this is back 40-odd years ago. And what I'm loving about this, Peter, is that you're not just talking about how we can rehydrate the landscape and grow more grass and sort of, you know, be more profitable farmers and so on. You're This for me and what I'm getting, and I'm really excited by this bit, is that, and I'm, again, not surprised knowing you, this, this gets back to food, doesn't it? It's about it gets back to general health because, general health. you see, the only thing that I had as a target when I started this was the healthiest animal I could find, so it was the fastest. And, of course, that's where I did the research and everything I've done ever since was based on just that process. How do I get the best living organisms out of this system? And they're very sensitive horses, aren't they? You know, so they were oh, quite, quite, the, horses. quite the canary in the coal mine, as it were. Oh, no question. And is that a chicken around here somewhere? Sounds really close, doesn't it? Probably. <laughs> under, our, under our feet. Um, Peter, what are you excited about? Mm, not much today. <laughs> How rude. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, what are you going to be so excited about? What tomorrow? would excite oh, no, me? I know, I know it's going to excite tomorrow. Can you see me drive out of here? That'll get that to be pretty. No, exciting. no, no. I'm not. I'm not <laughs> accusing you of the problem. I'm just simply saying the long period of frustration and putting something as simple as everybody could see, and then talking to Angus Taylor. I told him I was going to light a fire under him. I'm about to do that. I said, in actual fact, he's been talked about this for eight years and that, in fact, he came out here a few weeks ago and we told him and showed him how it all works and he spoke to Stuart and he said, oh, it's about the liquid moving in water. Yes, it is, Angus. And you haven't sent a single scientist to check it so that you could get the best advice in the world, mate criminally negligent what can look <laughs> at that smirk <laughs> well I told him I told I'm him but you now. see what I said is believe me I want to see a win-win for everybody mm, yeah. I want to see you as a hero leading the world mm-hmm. because it's possible and it's possible within very short order and when he was here, this group, and Jan Bregorny, who I'd said I'd been working with quite considerably, he said, I want a commercial outcome. And I said, right, Jan, give us a commercial one, because he said that this Australian information used worldwide would get us back to CO2 levels less than 10 years ago. So this time he said, if 30% did this, it would be worth $127 trillion to the world community. When you say 30% of Australian landscape, Australian farmers? What, what farmers. Farmers. Mm. Principles. 
Um, what do, what do you, Peter? What do you think? You mentioned Angus Taylor there, the the local um, federal MP, Minister for Energy. Yes. What do you think? <laughs> what do you think? What do you think? What? I'm not sure how to pose this question, Peter, because I'm not well, sure. Well, we'll probably both go to jail anyway. <laughs> I was going to ask you. What what can the government do? What would be what would be some simple steps if the government really understood this? What would they go? What would they? What would you suggest they should do or could go and do to make an impact as a as a gov as the it, government it, of Australia? It would be as simple as saying we have a reserve bank board and we have all these other boards for main instrumentalities for human management. We don't have one for the environment and. I can tell you, because I've walked people through these things, within a day, they've got a grip on fundamental processes that the government could be basing their next decision on. Is that kind of like, and um, this is probably the the wrong way to explain it, like a licence to farm in a way? And a licence is not the right word, but like there needs to be some like a, a verification of the competency of a farmer to farm and and manage the environment. Um, I believe, rather than because these are very difficult individuals to play with. These damn farmers, you know that. Mm. I'm, I'm probably one of them. But anyway, the issue is if we give them an incentive that they could be the best in the world and they would make profits by producing the best in the world and the others who are not doing that are recognised because today from Google Earth and all these things, it is very easy to show those landscapes that are functioning and the next thing is if we stop talking about soil, which most people have to shovel off the driveway or out of the damned house and talked about plants which everybody can see... Mm the evidence would be available to everybody. And if you grow more plants, no matter what they are, and you recycle them to the high ground, the rest is pretty automatic. You grow the soil, won't you? What do they say? Well, they make the soil. They make the soil, yeah. So, what they is do it? everything. What's that expression? Uh, um, soil grows plants, but plants make soil. No, yeah. soil doesn't grow plants. Their plants are designed specifically to live with or without the soil, not all plants, but obviously the plants that proceed the next cycle mm. do that. They can live off the atmosphere, you know, everything from the cryptogram oh, through to yeah. Spanish moss and those things. They live on trees and they, they don't need any soil. On the rocks. And on rocks, absolutely. And, of course, when we don't have those plants, then the gap starts to occur oh, and that's exactly what's going on today. Peter, I'm looking at the time. And it's why we've been at this for nearly two hours. Would you believe? Mm. Have it's been so much fun? You just didn't, uh, didn't you? Forgot how, how long? <laughs> oh no! You know, it. If I could see a solution, I would spend every hour, waking hour of the day, mm. seeing that it worked. Mm. And you know, I have offered ever, forever, that I would take people in and use my eighty years of hell, as far as I'm concerned to show them what the evidence is and then they could conduct the science to confirm and then make it available to anyone who is prepared to listen. You can't make them do it. But if you gave them an opportunity to find the information, the information that I've had of these people who are the 1% of 1%, 65% of people will do it 
and 35% will actually improve on the information that other people have demonstrated. I can't believe this is not the way we shouldn't go. Peter, um, I just want to say thank you for your time. You're very generous, not just in your time with me this afternoon, but also the fact you've put 40 years of your life specifically. I know that your training, as it were, your your understanding is goes way beyond that. But your last 40 years, you've been um, you've been at it, and you've been convincing, and you've been persistent. And I just want to thank you. For on behalf of many, many, many farmers that I know um, that have seen you on Australian Story, read your book, uh, Back from the Brink, and have been following you with interest and support, to thank you for, for pushing on because it's been, you know, the significant... The, 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 I'm pumping your tyres up here, by the way. The, 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 the impact and the influence you've had on... Many, many farmers and non-farmers has been significant and, 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 and it's a real credit to you. And I, I appreciate the fact that it hasn't all been smooth sailing for you, but you've just pushed on, which is a you know, credit. Well, I'm going to thank you because if it's not for people like yourself, this will never change. And that's everybody within the media and the delivery of sensible information in the interests of the future of this community. And if we don't have enough people like yourself, this is still not going to happen. And if we have some of these broadcasters who are talking about stuff that makes no scientific sense at all, there should be an immediate effort to expose that rank stupidity, which will happen, of course, because I keep most things on the public record. And I've made sure that if... I disappeared tomorrow, there'd be many of those people who you're talking about publicise the failures of these people within the media, people within the scientific community who have misinformed our leaders. So you can't expect a leader to do the best thing if these people who are charged with the responsibility of this information are not doing their part. You're trying. Thank you very much. Well... There's a lot of people trying, Peter, a lot of people supporting you, a lot of people on the on the team, and um, I trust that this little chit-chat we've had is uh, would be another little, little, you know. Um, I'm looking for a threshold. There's been so many. We can talk, talk, jaw, jaw. We've got to get it to go. And um, I will say something. Let's make it happen. And don't think of anything more of the same because every time we go back to something that was traditionally brought or thought, that's been going on for 5,000 years and every civilization that's followed that process has failed. We've got one opportunity. This mm. old landscape, which covers every scenario we need to know, we better get really serious about understanding how to use it. Peter, one last question. Believe it or not, it's a short one. If you had a billboard, like a big billboard, you know, poster board thing on the highway just out here near Maroolan, and you could choose what was on it, what, what it said, it could be a question, it could be a statement, it could be, I don't know, what would you say on there? If, if, if all these people driving up the Hume Highway could read it, what would, you, what would you want them to read? There are two things that are important. I can't give up for one. Plants manage water and they produce every compound that supports life. 
Why can't we understand that every plant is doing that in some form? And then you see this old landscape, as it had massive changes and problems and more and more species of plants, it had the greatest species of plants until the burning era ever on the planet, and as extreme conditions such as Antarctica, the biodiversity there is greater because of the extreme conditions than in a place. And what happens? As this equilibrium is established, the biodiversity reduces. These are very simple things that we should keep in mind when we get to a place like Western Australia where the carry forest and the hardwood trees and the beautiful mix of flowers and plants, it was a land of flowers. Then the sheep ate out all the damn flowers and now, oh, you can't take another plant into Western Australia, but there's mm. damn sheep and people and all these other stupid things <laughs> that are going to join and right. they can't even get the science right. <laughs> that's a big billboard. How are we going to squeeze No, 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 no. I just had to put another couple in because <laughs> it all relies on the fact that plants are doing it. Yeah. And that's what the first thing was. I had to give them a bit of a wind-up as to why plants have to be there to for the result to occur. Otherwise, we can't manage water or anything or the, or the climate. So the vegans are onto something. <sighs> they have their plans. Look, they're very nice know. people and they're thinking and really dedicated to an outcome. Why don't they start looking at the most fundamental reasons why and look at this old landscape, how it worked, why it mm. worked? Mm instead of coming up with these ideas that have got no foundation, in fact, at all. About cows yeah. farting and burping and ruining it all. Oh, absolutely rubbish, total rubbish. And, you know, when you can find that CO2 is called a poison and a toxin, mm. when it feeds everything we've got, I mean, that's the one issue with the billboard is saying, poor vegan, what, what, who informed, misinformed the poor gentle person, whatever they are, on that note, thank you very much. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. I, I'm, I'm all for those discussions about that, and I, and I, and I'm always open to that. You never, you're never going to have a, whether it's a, you know, sort of someone like me or you and I, or you, you talking to a, a vegan or something, um, or any discussion with uh, changes opinion. No one ever, no one ever turns around and says, "Oh, thank you for that. Thank you for changing my mind in that discussion of half an hour." It's sort of, well, it's almost pointless to have arguments. It's more. Get, let's just get on and sort of do what we're doing, you know. I don't well, know, I'm not getting uppity about it. A few years ago, about three, a couple of more or less vegans and very serious green thinkers came to me and said, you know, what are you doing? And I said, well, what we've just talked about. And now they're sort of some of my most important support supporters and hopefully That's great. they don't get too twisted and they keep on the trail that we're following mm. and everyone get all benefit from it. And I totally agree. That is the thing. And I think there's many people who, you know, with some understanding and informed decision-making, there there's a lot of people I'd be, I think we'd be surprised are actually on, on the team, aren't they? You know, all different backgrounds and beliefs because this stuff's pretty compelling. Well, there's no reason not to be because mm. everyone's welcome, the information is certain, and the outcome is guaranteed. Because it's the oldest and best on the in the on the planet, so I can't understand, you know, why we ponder about whether it's real. I'm not pondering. 
Now man. I'm pondering about I'm getting myself about home and, le- and leaving you to it. Yeah, You've well, probably got some chickens to feed or I don't know. We'll go and steal some of those apples. Hey, look at all this stuff. They don't need feeding. They're all there too fat. That's why they're oh, here being, being a pest. <laughs> well, I hope I haven't been a pest. No, mate, you're welcome. Peter, thank you so much for your time and I'm really excited we got to sit down and chat about this and do it here in your home because that's important for me. So thank you and I'll um, look forward to chatting with you and again another time. Well, I'm hoping that this little town, Mungonia, with its amazing historic background and the fact that it was three beautiful little, well, maybe four, there was a beautiful little set of chain ponds that had been sustained and managed by willow trees and by 1870 was declared a environmental feature I was hoping that the ignorance that caused them to poison all the willow trees and put this on the skids to total destruction, recognise it and we do something to bring back the three, four ponds that were there. And the evidence is absolutely certain that that was a situation that existed. So what I said to them when I, this is 20 years ago, you've got some of the oldest information in the world and you've got the greatest opportunity, the destruction of humanity and the reproduction of the environment under the worst conditions. And at this stage, I failed miserably, which depresses me daily. But this is a wonderful demonstration this right, is, right, right here. I'd lo- Well, absolutely. You've got to look over the fence, haven't I? I know that, but, you know, it would be wonderful if we st- extended from here to the town. Mm. And I had previously all the neighbours agreeing that we could do this. This is only five kilometres. And we do have a quarry at the top. They're very supportive. They have agreed. They've got a person employed who got a very high um, credit from the university, National University. So the potential is there. It won't take much to bring it into reality. Well, I'll I'll be supporting you any way I can, Peter. Thank you very much. We need that. Always. Every sort of, um, let me say, every person who's prepared to stand up and be counted. And Mm. and let me tell you, Gandhi got rid of the English out of India with ten people. Doesn't take big hordes of people to do it. Mm. And so I think five, and if we had two good spokespeople to show that we can coordinate this information, and then bring together those people in every district who could act as facilitators and and improvers, we could start tomorrow. Let's do it. Guarantee. Okay, I'm ready. Yeah, mighty yarn, do you? Uh, Well, I don't like... You can talk a bit. I... (laughs) Yeah, I've been talking too much, mate. I'm I'm a man of action if I can get there. (laughs) No, I love it. Peter, let's, let's, let's sign off. Thank you. What a wonderful uh, interview and what an honour to be interview to have interviewed uh, Peter Andrews there in his uh, in his home um, at his farm after forty years of you know dare I say um, a battle to to get people over the line about what he's doing and, and recreating that hydrological function 
that has been lost from this landscape over many, many years. Fascinating chat. And just a, a note there too, probably something I should have said at the beginning of the of the, um, of the interview, is you know, we didn't really get into the, the nuts and bolts and the mechanics of what he does. It was more about you know, his life and, and, the, and the struggles he's had and the wins he's had as well. Um, so if you do want to understand more about what Peter's talking about in, in the natural seconds farming scheme of things, then I would suggest, uh, if not listen to Stuart Andrews, the, the episode previous to this one, or go to a Tarwin training um, event. Uh, check out their website. But next week, we have Dave Westbrook. I met Dave um, some time ago now. He is a lovely fella, lovely family. Um, his, fa- his story's fascinating, actually, because... Um, We'll have to listen to this to find out why, but uh, you know he's had he's had some um, some tough tough challenges um, to to get through. Um, he's come out the other side. Um, you know, family succession issues um, not uncommon in the farming game. And Dave, lovely fellow who um, is now mentoring other farmers, and I think it's really important that fellow like Dave, who's who's um, you know, had his challenges is using that um, to teach others how to navigate some of those challenges. Um, Dave, I, I sat down with him at our uh, Hannah Minnow and he came to visit for a few days and I uh, hope you enjoy the interview next week with Dave Westbrook. This podcast is produced by Rhys Jones at Jaeger Media. If you enjoyed this episode, please feel free to subscribe, share, rate and review. For more episode information, please head over to www.charliearnett.com.au.